Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome to Thoughts from Home. I'm Mike McAllister. I'll be your host today, and I'm here with Casey Johnson, who is a land management technician at NCTC. We are going to talk about NCTC's land management practices, specifically pollinator gardens, and share ways on how you can start your own pollinator garden that will be buzzing with wildlife. Casey, thanks for joining us today. Can you share why pollinator gardens are so important? Absolutely. Let's back up for a second and think about the habitat itself. What are we really trying to do? Well, I think in terms of pollinators, which use the habitat, they're certainly looking for three basic needs, food, water, and shelter. So to meet those needs, especially as it relates to the time of year, we want to make sure that we have a very robust, diverse habitat. And native species play a very important role in that. So as you can imagine, it's a very dynamic situation that we need to foster to provide as much habitat as possible for those pollinators that rely on those areas. You were saying uh, providing shelter. Are there certain plants that you plant that bloom or grow at certain times of the year? Is there some thought to having a blooming garden? Yeah, so when anyone thinks about a pollinator garden, you naturally want year-round interest, right? You don't want a whole bunch of the same thing, bloom all at once, look really awesome for a week or two, and then just be dead, crispy plants the other 11 and a half months of the year. I don't think anyone really wants that. So the plant variety and diversity plays a huge role, but also from, let's say, a human interest, you want maybe different layers, different textures of plants, maybe different colors, forms. I mean, you name it. There's all kinds of different parameters that you could use to have an engaging habitat. But what that is essentially doing is it's providing, again, food and shelter and water throughout the year for pollinators that might be passing through the area during a certain time of year. Or if they're sticking around, it gives them a sustainable source to get food and shelter if they're just hanging out in the area to do what they need to do to be happy and survive and thrive into future generations. So it sounds like there is a lot of thought and uh, planning that needs to go into these pollinator gardens. Do you have any suggestions for starting a pollinator garden? I do. And a lot of that comes with homework, unfortunately. Know your site. It might be beneficial to, once you have established an area, check the soil quality, the compaction. I know you can send soil samples out to be tested for different variables, usually through a local extension office. Those numbers that you get back would be very important to find out if you need to add anything to the soil. So you really want to start with a great base before you ever go out and even buy a plant. Of course, based on your site location, you want to choose the correct plant that's going to survive or do well in that area that you've chosen. So knowing your plant is the next most important thing, in my opinion. So if you're looking to accomplish either a specific maybe color palette or form structure, do your research on the locally available native plants in your area or region. 
Of course, that's going to differ naturally, but the internet's going to be your best friend, your local library, of course, wherever you can get information. I know there's plenty of local garden clubs that have a strong presence in local communities. So I would just reach out to all those places and figure out what other people are doing, get your questions answered, and use that as a starting point to really develop a strong, robust pollinator garden. The last thing you want to do is put in a bunch of work just to see it fail because maybe you didn't account for a couple very important factors. Yeah, yeah. So definitely do some planning, talk to other authorities and see what they're up to. Are there certain plants you can plant to target different species of pollinators? Absolutely. A big one that comes to mind is the monarch butterfly. I'm sure you've heard in the the news a lot of their population numbers are on decline. So fostering a corridor for those insects to be able to have what are essentially monarch way stations. And the plant that they require the most, of course, is milkweed, which is in the genus Asclepius. So if you're looking for a high value plant for wildlife, locally native milkweed species for your area is definitely a good start. And as you may know, they require milkweed to complete their life cycle. Whereas if you have a similar plant, such as, say, dogbane, which is Apocanum hanabinum, we would have a plant for them to land on, but it wouldn't be very beneficial other than maybe having a little bit of the nectar from the flowers because mm-hmm. it's so similar in the sense to other Asclepius species that it confuses the butterfly. They would lay their eggs on it, but it wouldn't go anywhere. They wouldn't be able to complete the okay. life cycle. So it'd almost be damaging. Yeah, in, in some respects. Now, I don't think anyone's going to go out and plant a bunch of dogbane, but there are plants out there that might prohibit versus improve Mm -hmm. the life cycle of different critters. So that's just one example. I had never really uh, considered targeting a plant or planting a plant to target pollinators and insects. Absolutely. How do you deal with pests in the garden and what is NCTC's approach to this? Well, the, the short answer is it depends. You know, what, what is a pest? A pest is anything that you don't necessarily want. So a pest could be anything from an invasive insect that might be interfering with life cycles of, of other insects, or you might have, let's say, a native population of deer that come in and try and decimate the plants that you're trying to promote for wildlife. You mean the deer don't leave them alone because <laughs> they know they're for the butterflies? I mean, if the deer is going to want a tasty snack yeah, in the form of a native vegetation that they would absolutely enjoy, <laughs> I don't think there's, they're not going to hold back, but there are ways to deal with that. There are certain sprays that you can use that are still also environmentally friendly. So for the deer part here at NCTC, we actually use a couple different solutions. One is a kind of like a egg putrescence mix with garlic and it's a commercially available product. We don't mix it on site other than, you know, add water to it to to use in our handheld spray bottles. But uh, the other one that we go back and forth with is a hot sauce with a anti-transparent, which allows it to stick to the leaves and flower petals of the plant. And the reason we go back and forth is because the deer can get accustomed to the flavor of, of both of those things. Now, granted, we do it because the deer 
don't like it. They don't like the taste of it. Yeah. To me, that just sounds like a really awesome breakfast. <laughs> Garlic and hot sauce? Right, exactly. Uh, sign me up. Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> I'll be eating some milkweed leaves. But yeah, there's, of course, uh, physical barriers. You can do fencing, netting. That'll keep whatever animal you're trying to keep out of the area, the planted area. There's physical barriers like that. But yeah, there's just a handful of different methods. And of course, the, the plant itself matters. There are some deer-resistant plants that you can purchase that aren't going to necessarily be as tasty or tempting okay. to deer, rabbits, squirrels, groundhogs. But the pollinators will still yeah, be attracted absolutely, to it. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. You hinted at this, but does NCTC have a pollinator garden? And can you share a little bit about it, if we have one? So the answer is yes, and yes, and yes, and yes. There's probably at least 10 different pollinator planting efforts on campus that I'm aware of. And some of them are as small as a two foot by two foot square. Okay. And there's some as big as a entire meadow that we've seeded in a particular species that we want to grow for pollinators. And those objectives require different planning and there's different ways to maintain those throughout the year and year to year. But yes, the, the answer is yes, yes, yes. <laughs> That's really interesting. So a pollinator garden can be a small, almost several potted plants grouped together, or it could be something as large as a whole meadow. I never really considered a mini pollinator garden. Right. And you brought up a great point. It doesn't have to be in the ground. If you just have a deck or a patio or a balcony, it's just as important to have plants for native pollinators, regardless of whether or not they're in the ground or in a pot, because the end goal, in my opinion, is we're trying to reduce the habitat fragmentation due to human development. So what I picture is okay, you can't control where any of these critters are going, but what you can do is help them along the way, right? You're basically creating a, a virtual highway for them to have rest stops along the way, wherever they're coming or going. Okay. So it's a, it's a good way to think about it. And even if, let's say, maybe you can't even have a plant, you can maybe have a bird bath or some other beneficial habitat, like a shelter, for them to find and nest in. It gives them cover from the elements. So there's multiple ways to help out. That is very interesting. I know I will look at some things I can do at my house. I, I don't think I'm going to plant a huge garden, but I, I definitely like the smaller things I can do to improve the pollinators' lives. Is there anything our listeners can do to take part in their own pollinator gardens or helping pollinator garden efforts? Absolutely. So when folks do go to their local nurseries or plant dealers, be wary of a couple things. Some plants do get treated ahead of time with certain chemicals. Some are known as neonicotinoids, which can affect local pollinators, especially bees. And something else to keep in mind is while plant breeding is not inherently a bad thing, some of the plant breeding that does take place for commercial purposes is not as beneficial for local wildlife as much as it's done for other reasons. Meaning you could have different traits that make it look pretty, that make it look better versus you know something that has a higher nectar content. And an example of this, I'm going to try this. I know it's a podcast, but I'm going to have Mike look at this picture of a flower that I have in front of me and try and describe it. And we can talk about it a little bit. It is a pink Fufa ball with pink feathers and a yellow center. 
That was pretty good, Mike. I'm impressed. That's excellent. <laughs> so what he's describing is a cultivar of a type of echinacea. And the fufu ball that he's referring to is a, it's like a, a double or a triple petal flower arrangement on the top. And it looks amazing, right? It I, looks great. I need it. So think about this, though. If you're an insect, a pollinator, a bee, how do you really get to that nectarine center of the flower if you have to fight all those petals to get to the middle of it? So are you saying we should think about the critters that are using our gardens and not just make them pretty for humans? Weird, right? Now, there are plenty of pretty native cultivars out there that are also beneficial for wildlife. But just be aware of different cultivar names or if you're actually able to see the flower, just make sure that it's not going to hinder certain pollinators. And, you know, there's there's plenty of research opportunities to find out more about the plant that you're buying. But yeah, just keep that in mind. There's a saying that I read recently from Michigan State University, which I thought was pretty clever. Be intentional about your plant selection. I really like that. Thank you, Casey, for sharing about pollinator gardens and giving us advice on how to get started or maybe adding some diversity to the gardens we currently have. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope you continue to learn more about pollinators and the important part we each play in providing them a colorful, blooming habitat. Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.